Turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to start this morning by picking up at verse 10. <clears throat> Before we do that, let me, um, let me just mention a couple things coming off of last week's sermon, which was Genesis 12, 1 through 9, the, the call of Abraham, uh, the promise of blessing. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we did last week, we emphasized the sort of the nature of the promise or the future-looking anticipation that a promise brings, the certainty that, um, that promise holders can have for future blessing because God has promised it. And then we looked also at the way that Abraham responded to the promise when it was delivered to him. Abraham, get up, leave, go to the land that I'm going to show you, and I will bless you this way. I will bless you that way. And so we, we talked a little bit about the, the nature of promise blessing and the response that comes with that. What I want to do just briefly before we go to our passage today is to sort of take a step back, look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and just make maybe three statements that will hopefully serve as something of a framework for much of what we have left to cover in the book of Genesis, okay? How do, in other words... Uh, my, what I want to drive home is, what is the significance for the story that's developing through Genesis? What is the significance of Genesis 12, 1 through 3? And I would try to sum it up three ways, if you can try to put the pieces of Genesis together without getting lost in all the detail. Uh, number one, we saw as early as Genesis 1 that, God, uh, that God's intention was to create a world that would enjoy his blessing, particularly his image bearers, that they would enjoy fellowship with him and through that would enjoy his blessing. But the, the first realization that we came to very quickly is that we are unable to fully enjoy God's blessing due to sin and judgment. So if you think through what had happened in Genesis, you have Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, even in a perfect environment, they give way to temptation, they lose the, the blessing, the condition that God had created for them, their, their prized and privileged place, they're exiled from the garden, and yet God continues to show His mercy and His kindness and His grace. But we go from Adam and Eve's sin, eating of the fruit, to in the very next generation with Cain and Abel, to murder, to bigamy, to rejoicing in violence to Genesis chapter 6, where all of the earth is so corrupt and wicked that God says, I'm just going to wipe everyone out and I'm going to start clean again. So he does that, and then he starts with Noah and his family by repeating the blessing from Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. God's blessing resting on this family that is supposed to have a, a fresh start. But before we even get out of Genesis chapter 9, we saw that once again, sin rears its head, and we go from God pronouncing a blessing on Noah and his sons and descendants to a curse being pronounced. And from that, you have all of these descendants that come from Noah's sons culminating or climaxing in another act of rebellion at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 
where God has to execute his judgment on human pride and arrogance and scatter people to the winds, which creates not unity in the human race, but division and separation. So over and over and over again, we see that because of our sin and our disobedience, the blessing that God intends for his creation to enjoy is not something that we can fully experience, and it's not something that we can enjoy in any kind of a permanent, settled way because of our sin and rebellion. Number two, because of that, God promises to fix or secure his blessing on all the nations through Abraham. That's the significance of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The blessing that God brings to His creation, brings to people over and over again, is fleeting because of continued sin. By the time we get to Genesis 12, people are scattered, they're separated, they're cordoned off by language and political interests and ethnicities. How is God going to bring all of this back together so that all of humanity can enjoy His blessing in a fixed and settled way? And God says, the only way that that's going to happen is if I promise to do what mankind cannot do. I will see to it that all humanity is blessed, and I'll start by blessing Abraham. And then third... When the promise of blessing is given to Abraham, the response that the promise compels or calls out is one of faith and obedience. God says, I will do this, I will do that, I will do these things, I promise to bless you, Abraham, and through you all the other nations. The question is, does Abraham believe God and the promises that he makes, and if he does, Will he live in light of those promises? So from Genesis 12 all the way through, one of the common major themes that you're going to see with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and down to the trials of Joseph is the challenge that comes in recognizing that a life of faith is all about fixing and ordering your life according to God's promise. Faith is fixing and ordering your life according to God's promise. Now, we say that to bring us to where we are today in 1210, which is to look at Abraham soon after he's received the promises in 12.1 through 3, the promise of blessing, soon after he responds with faith and obedience and leaving his his homeland, leaving what is familiar to him, going to a place that has not yet been named, to a land that God says, I will give to you, to your descendants in the future, Abraham responds positively by faith and obedience to the promises of God. 1210, though, gives us very early on in the life of Abraham the first test of faith that Abraham encounters. So follow along with me then in 1210 through 13.1. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister 
so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram went into Egypt, or came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abraham well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. 13.1, so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Open our eyes now, Father, to see wonderful things from your word. Give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts to love what it is that we see and discover about your goodness and faithfulness to your people because of your promise to us. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen. So Genesis 12, 10 through 13, 1. If you wanted to sum up this episode in Abraham's life, you could sum it up simply by saying... God is faithful when we're faithless. God is faithful when we're faithless. And the passage breaks down into two parts for us in a, in a fairly neat way. We can take 12, 10 through 16, which basically follows Abram's journey into Egypt, his plan as to how he will protect himself and keep himself alive and how that plan works itself out. That's the first part, Abraham and his, his response, 12, 17 and following, is the Lord intervening on Abram's behalf to protect Abram, Sarai, and ultimately to keep the promise secure. So, notice a couple things right up front, just in the opening of this scene, and try to see if there's not an easy connection that we can make between the challenges that Abraham is facing here in this episode with the challenges that we face. 12, 1 through 9, Abram gets a call from the Lord, a promise that he's going to be blessed, but a call that demands Abram to leave everything in pursuit of God's promised blessing. And Abraham does. At 75 years old, he leaves everything and he goes sight unseen to some random place that God is going to show him. He enters into the land of Canaan and God says, okay, Abram, this is it. This is the land. This is where the blessing is going to happen. And in 12.4 and following, you have Abram moving from north to south through the land setting up in these little strategic places altars to the Lord where he worships and he praises God in response to the promises and the blessings that God is going to give him. 
when we get to the end of verse 9 and we transition to verse 10, Abraham, at least from our reading, we don't know how much time elapses between verses 4 through 9 and verse 10, but in our reading, Abraham has barely gotten his bearings in the land before a famine strikes. What, do, what must you be thinking if you're Abram? You've left all of your security, all the things that are familiar to you, you've left friends and family trusting that God is going to do great things for you because that's what God promised He would do. And you go to the place where God says, this is it, this is the place where great things are going to happen, and then you wake up one morning and you find out there's no food for you to eat. Doesn't that seem to be counterintuitive? Like if Abraham is responding positively to the promises of God, that Abraham should expect that, okay, you just wait and watch. The heavens are about to open up and God is going to be raining down blessing on us. This is one of the odd, frustrating features of a life of faith. Probably most of us in this room, if you have walked with the Lord for any amount of time, have experienced something similar to this. Because of your faith in the Word of the Lord, you have made painful, costly decisions because you believe that the Lord has a greater reward than what this person can offer you, or this job can offer you, or this home can offer you, or this vehicle. You make sacrifices. You leave familiar places and people. You connect yourself with people who are odd and strange. Looking at you, Edgewood, as you're looking at me. You, you do these things because this is what the Lord calls you to do, and you do so fully expecting that as you walk in faith and obedience, you are going to experience the blessing of the Lord. And then the unexpected happens. The Lord was leading us to this new job. The Lord was leading us to this new place. We move in. We buy the house that the Lord just seemed to drop in our laps. Clearly, the Lord is working. And then first week in the new house, what happens? The fridge dies. The stove doesn't work. Squirrels are in the attic. You find out that the neighbor kids down the road are rotten, and your kids are starting to pick up rotten habits. Listen, one of the things that has to be recognized up front and one of the benefits of this episode in Abraham's life being recorded for us and given to us in the Word of God is to remind us of the fact that the promise of God's blessing does not promise us ease and comfort. The promise of God's blessing in the future does not guarantee that we will enjoy in full, all of the blessings that God has in store for us in this very moment, at this particular time, in this particular place. 
Sometimes walking by faith, walking by obedience puts you in a position where you cannot make sense out of what's going on. Here we are in the land of promise. This is where God led us. This is where God said He's going to bless us. Why are we suffering through a famine? If we don't get out of here, we are going to starve to death and die. What do we do? You think it felt odd to Abraham to, after he got into the promised land, to have to leave the promised land to go somewhere else? If you were in Abraham and Sarah's position, don't you think you would, you would be rethinking your obedience? Abraham's like, well, I, I was certain that the Lord was telling us to go this way, but now I'm starting to wonder. Maybe it was just something I ate. All through Scripture, we see over and over and over again that living by faith and obedience does not immunize us from testing and trial. If anything, it exposes us to testing and trial. Abraham will go down to Egypt and he will be delivered and brought out of Egypt. By the way, interestingly enough, Abraham's descendants will also find themselves in Egypt and will be delivered out of Egypt, right? But in sort of a reversal, almost, going from a bad position to a good position, what happens when the Lord delivers His covenant people out of Egypt? Do they enter immediately into this lush garden environment with the best kind of fruit and vegetables just falling into their laps? Or does He put them in the wilderness to test them to see what is in their heart and to teach them that man does not live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord? And, of course, the classic example is of Christ Himself in the Gospels, where immediately after He is presented publicly and is prepared to begin His ministry in baptism, He's he's baptized, He comes out of the water, a voice from heaven, the Father Himself audibly pronounces, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends upon Christ. What happens in the very next scene? He's driven into the wilderness where he goes without food for 40 days and nights. And in his weakness, he must do battle and face the temptations of Satan. Living in light of the promises of God does not mean that your life and my life will be easy. In fact, precisely because we're living in light of the promises of God, we will more often than not find that the promises push us into uncomfortable situations or are the only things that we can cling to when the world around us seems to be falling apart. What, what, about, what are we to make of Abraham's decision? There's famine in the land, and Abram decides that he's going to go down to Egypt so that he can have food. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Silence is probably wise. 
I'll tell you, commentators are divided. There are some guys and women, some men and women who say, oh, here it is, famine or no, Abram should have trusted the Lord and should have remained in the land and let the Lord provide for him. If he had not gone down to Egypt, he wouldn't have gotten into this mess. Other people say, well, no, the text doesn't fault Abraham for going down to Egypt. It faults him for what he does after he's in Egypt, right? The lie, the deceit. And then some of us just sort of throw our hands up and say, I don't know. Listen, here, here is a needful and encouraging reminder. This is also life. Looking at the hand that is dealt you or looking at the circumstances that are beyond your control and trying to say, I don't know whether I'm supposed to go to the right or to the left. What am I supposed to do? And you step out in response to the situation and find out that shortly after that, things are falling to pieces. Do you look back on that decision and do you say, oh, well, clearly then I sinned because look at how difficult life is for me. It could be that you made a bad choice and this is the way that the Lord is getting you back on track. Or it could also be that you did not make a wrong choice and this is just life in a broken world. The encouragement that you need to take away from Abraham's life here in this episode is that even if you can't decide whether or not your decision was a good one or a bad one, your security is not based on your decision-making. Your security rests in the faithfulness of God in spite of your decision-making. So hopefully by the time you get to the end of chapter 12, you say, well, I don't know what Abraham was thinking. I don't know if it was right or wrong for him to go down to Egypt. I could see pros or cons. I could go either way. But what I do know is all of this uncertainty and danger and threat is surrounding Abraham, but God remains constant through the whole thing. I'm going to try to put our focus not so much on the decision that Abraham makes to go to Egypt, but on the decision or the plan that Abraham hatches to try to save his own skin. When you look at Abram speaking to his wife, I just realized I'm going back and forth, Abram, Abraham, Abraham, Abram, we'll do this for a while, all right? deal with it. When he speaks to his wife, Abram says, I know you're beautiful. Other men are going to see your beauty, and if they know that I'm your husband, they're going to knock me off to get to you. But there's a way that we can work around that, and I can save my life. All we have to do is tell them that you're my sister and not mention the wife part. It sounds like Abram is very fearful about what he's going to encounter in the land of Egypt. Does he need to be fearful? 
One of the things that probably would have helped Abram out, one of the things that definitely would help us out, is if in the midst of fearful circumstances and situations, we take our minds off of the threats that potentially could arise, and we set our mind back on the promises of God and His nature and character. Abraham fears that he is going to be killed so that men can get to his wife. But if Abraham had gone back to God's promises in 12, 1 through 3, he would find that the promises of God are incompatible with his fear. So the Lord promises to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. How's that going to happen if the Egyptians knock him off? Abram, I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. Because Abraham has no descendants, has no sons, has no heirs, doesn't that mean that Abram is going to have to stick around for a little bit in order to be turned into a great nation? Do you see what we're getting at? If Abraham were to have gone back and said, this is what the Lord has promised. The Lord has promised that He is going to bless me. The Lord has promised that He is going to multiply me. The Lord has promised that He will bless those who bless me and curse those who curse me. There would be very little reason for Abram to fear what the Egyptians might do to him. How often in the Christian life would the best medicine, the best treatment for our fear be to go back and to simply preach the promises of God to our hearts and to our minds? To say, I know that this is what the situation looks like, but the Lord has said, The Lord has said that He is trustworthy and true to His Word. This situation, this circumstance does not look like God being trustworthy, but because He is, this is my opportunity to prove Him trustworthy. And so instead of having the wheels turning in your mind about all the scenarios and about all the things that threaten you or all the things that could fall apart, go to the Word of God and preach the promises of God to your heart and mind and find the certainty of God's Word to be greater than the uncertainty in the circumstances of life. This is hard. Let's be honest. If you face a life and death situation, it is hard to battle fear with the promises of God. Well, I, I don't want to make light of that. 
I don't even want to suggest or imply that if we just read Scripture long enough, if we memorize enough passages, if we preach to ourselves hard enough, that fear will just be magically erased and driven out. I'm not suggesting that either. What I am trying to drive home, what I do want to see when I read a passage like this, is that a life of faith for all of us will put us in the way of risk and harm and threat. And in those situations, the only way to continue to walk in faith and obedience is to continue to set your mind and heart on the word of the Lord. Some of this is learned by trial and error. That's okay. Right? God is faithful when we are faithless. It is not God is faithful if we are faithful. God will be faithful to you even if you are faithless, even if you blow it like Abraham does. This is why we have this episode in the life of Abraham recorded for us. Listen to a portion of a letter that John Newton wrote to a friend of his, talking about the difficulties that go along with the Christian calling and learning to live by faith. He says this, the Christian calling like many others, is easy and clear in theory, but difficult to reduce to practice. Things appear quite otherwise when we feel it to what they do when only read in a book. You identify with that? Right? As long as I'm sitting cloistered away in my home with the outside world kept at bay and I'm reading the, oh, glory, praise the Lord. Yes, this is true. Take me out into the driveway and let me find a flat tire. Let me get cut off. Let me have my job threatened. All of a sudden, the glory seems to fade from the book. Things appear quite otherwise when felt to what they do when only read in a book. Many learn the art of navigation, as it's called, by the fireside at home. But when they come to see... With their heads full of rules and without experience, they find that the art is only to be thoroughly learned on the spot. Similarly, to renounce self, to live upon Jesus, to walk with God, to overcome the world, to hope against hope, to trust the Lord when we cannot trace Him, and to know that our duty and privilege consist in these things may be readily acknowledged or quickly learned. But upon repeated trial, we find that saying and doing are two different things. We think at setting out that we sit down and count the cost. You think Abraham thought through the promises and said, okay, I'm willing to make this risk. He counted the cost. We sit down and count the cost. But alas, our views are so superficial at first that we have occasion to correct our estimate daily. Oh, I didn't know the cost was going to be this high. Another day comes, oh, the cost is even higher. 
For every day shows us some new thing in the heart or some new turn in the management of the war against us which we were not aware of. And upon these accounts, discouragements may arise so high as to bring us to the very point of throwing down our arms and making either a tame surrender or a shameful flight. Thus it would be with us at last if the Lord of hosts were not on our side. And that's the turn at verse 17. For all of Abram's planning, for all of his scheming, for all of his effort and attempt to save his own life and to preserve and keep his future intact, his very best plan creates more disaster than help. He enters into Egypt. He says, this is my sister. And since it's his sister, well, we don't have to worry about any kind of attachment here. We'll take the woman and we'll compensate him for the loss with a bunch of cattle and livestock and male and female servants and we'll call it good. So Abraham, in one sense, has spared his own life, but what good is it going to do him if he's lost his wife? How's he going to multiply now? There's even, I think, a little tongue-in-cheek in the text that goes along with the irony, the twist of fate. If you go to verse 13, when Abram is talking to Sarai and he says, please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, and then skip down to verse 16, therefore Pharaoh treated Abraham well for her sake, say this so that they treat me well. Pharaoh treated Abram well when he stole his wife. Oh yeah, Abraham, it really worked out well. You hear the sarcasm? Nice job. Verse 17, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Abram is not going to make it out of this mess that he has created by his own effort. Abram is not going to make it out of this test and trial because he is so wise and smart and shrewd and crafty and cunning. If Abram is to make it out of this situation with the promises intact, with the hope of future blessing to come, it is going to take a dramatic intervention of the Lord on his behalf. By the way, that is your life and my life every single day. Your security in the blessings and promises of God are not there. You are not secure because of how successful you are in living the Christian life. You are not secure in the blessings of God because of how wise you are or how strong you are or how successful you are. It means nothing if God is not the one who is going to be faithful for you. The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house because Sarah was in danger. Can I pause here just for a little side note? Husbands and wives, hold your place here and go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 
Look at verse 1, that gives the main thought, but then look at the example that, that Peter uses to support his main thought. 1 Peter 3, verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. I take it that when Peter is talking about men who are disobedient to the word, he's talking actually about unbelievers. So if he can say this to Christian women who are married to non-Christian men, certainly this applies to Christian women married to Christian men, right? Look at the example that he uses. Verse 5, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Sarah is the example of what a Christian wife looks like. What do you think Peter might have in mind when he talks about walking with a husband even when it exposes you to danger and fear? You think maybe Peter is thinking about this episode in Genesis 12, 10? So, women, if you're married... I am sure that there have been plenty of times when you look at that hunk that you are married to and you just shake your head in disbelief at some of the choices that he makes. That's on a good day. On the worst day, you look at some of the decisions that your husband may be making and it gives you knots in your stomach because you feel like the decision that he's making is putting you and the family at risk. Guess what? You are in good company. Sarah had to have thought when she heard this harebrained idea that Abram had, this is not going to go well. <laughs> Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's harem and for all intents and purposes is now gone, non-existent. Sarah, do you trust the Lord more than you trust your husband? You better Christian wives, do you trust the Lord more than you trust your husband? You better. Husbands, it is a fearful thing for a woman to have to follow you. It puts my wife in an awkward position to have to walk with me, to have to follow me, because not every decision that I make, not every inclination of my mind, not every assessment that I make is solidly on the money. Men, you might want to think about that as you interact with your wives. Be willing to grant a little bit of understanding and kindness to these women 
who are trying to encourage you and support you and live with you in spite of yourself. So, Chris, thank you. Back to Genesis chapter 12. The Lord struck Pharaoh. Notice how out of whack things are by the time we get to the end of this episode. How does the episode end? The Lord intervenes for Sarai, intervenes on behalf of Abram in order to make sure that the family is kept intact. Sarai is returned to Abram, but notice the man who is supposed to be bringing blessing to all the nations of the earth, the first opportunity that he gets brings a curse to the Egyptians. He brings plagues on them because of his fearful plan and scheme. Do you see the irony? This is not what Abraham's supposed to be doing. Anyone who comes into contact with Abraham should be seeing and knowing something of the Lord, should be experiencing blessing through Abram. But because of Abraham's fear, consuming his faith, rather than being a blessing, Abram becomes a curse. And then notice also, by the time you get to the end, it's Pharaoh who has the task of rebuking Abram. Abram, what are you doing? Why did you lie to me? You see how backwards this is? First test, Abraham has failed his mission to be a blessing to all people. First test, Abram is getting lectured by a godless Pharaoh. This does not bode well for the future. If in the very first test, Abraham fails so miserably, what hope or assurance does he have, or anyone else for that matter, that all that God intends to do with him is actually going to happen? Do you see what God has to work with? Do you see what God has to work with? What hope do any of us have that the blessings and the promises of God will rest fixed and firm on us both now and into eternity outside of the faithfulness of God? And just to deepen the irony and the paradox even further... In 12.9, Abram has traveled south through Canaan, from north to south. He's in the Negev region. He leaves from the southern region, goes down into Egypt. A disaster ensues. God miraculously uh, delivers him, and he makes his way back from Egypt, back up into the southern region, the Negev. When Abram returns to the promised land... After this disaster, he returns with more wealth than when he left. Let me phrase that another way. In one sense, Abraham returned with more blessings after that disaster than what he had before the disaster. How do you explain that?
Paul would explain it by saying something like, where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. Paul would explain it by saying things like, for we know that all things work together for our good to those who are called according to the purpose of God. All things work together for your good. Your boneheaded decisions, your weakness in fear, your doubt, your deliberate sin, all of those things ultimately will work to your good, not because of you, not because of your faithlessness, but because God remains faithful. Second Timothy 2. Verses 11 through 13. Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. Hear these promises. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But, verse 13, if we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Our hope and our security in the blessings of God with the promises that he gives us are nothing less than the nature and character of God himself. He remains faithful to us not because we are so lovable. He remains faithful to us not because we are so well-mannered, not because we are so obedient, not because we are so successful. He remains faithful to us because He can do nothing but faithfulness. And that is our hope. That is our security. So here it is, church. You go out to the workplace Monday morning. You go to the schoolroom or the classroom on Monday morning. You wrestle with the kids on Monday morning. And you look at the chaos that surrounds you. And you try to make sense out of what's happening around you. And you look at a dozen mistakes that you make before you even reach lunchtime. Where are you going to find your confidence? You better find it in God. You better be singing and preaching to yourself. If I am faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot and will not deny himself. Let's pray. Father, how can we not help but sing to you for your loving kindness that never ends, for grace that runs deeper than our sin, for a heavenly Father who looks 
on his children with compassion because he knows, you know, that we are weak and that we are dust. Father, forgive us for those times when the circumstances of this life so crowd out a view of your glory and the promises to come that we wander and stray from our confidence. Make us steadfast. Let us know your word to be a rock, a firm foundation that we can stand on and that we can use to weather any of the storms that come to us in life. Father, help us even when we fail miserably to turn our eyes to you and to find our hope of restoration in your goodness and faithfulness to us. Guard us, Father, from thinking that we can earn our way back into your good favor. Thank you that our destiny, our fate, our security with you has been decided once and for all because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, who is even now interceding for us at your right hand. Thank you that you have placed within each and every one of your children your very spirit who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let us live in light of that truth. Amen. We're going to close out the service with, uh, with a song. Let me make an appeal to anyone who's here who does, has not come into possession of the promises of God through Jesus Christ. There is no security, there is no guarantee that can be placed on your life greater than the security that comes with Jesus. If you don't know Jesus to be the one who has pardoned you and forgiven you for your sin, who has reconciled you to the Father so that you can know uninterrupted grace and favor and blessing... I would pay good money to be able to talk to you about that. I would pay you to listen to me talk about Jesus and how you can know him yourself. If that's you, don't leave too soon. At the end of the service, I'll make my way back into the sanctuary. If you're lingering around and you want to talk, we'll talk. It'd be a privilege, it'd be an honor. No greater promise, no greater joy than what's offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Andy? I've made a change in our um, worship uh, music. Uh, we'd prefer to close with the song that we ended with just now in Christ, uh, Christ Our Hope because I feel that what Jonathan preached is that we have ultimate hope in God. So uh, would you stand? We're just going to sing, sing this song uh, to the end as we respond to what um, God spoke through Jonathan. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hands? 
what comes apart from his command and what will keep us to the end the love of christ in which we stand oh sing hallelujah our hope springs eternal oh sing hallelujah now and ever we confess christ our hope in life and death what truth can calm the troubled soul god is good god is good where is his grace and goodness known in our great redeemer's blood who holds our faith when fears arise who stands above the storm each trial who sends the waves that bring us night unto the shore the rock of christ oh sing hallelujah our hope springs eternal Christ he lives, Christ he lives, and what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him, there we will rise to meet the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy. When Christ is ours forevermore, forevermore, oh, sing hallelujah, our hope brings eternal, oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess, Christ our hope in life and death. As we close, as we speak of life and death, we have lost one of our uh, very own, Doris Griffin. Um, she's been a member here for over 47 years, I believe. Um, went home to be with the Lord last week. Don't know the funeral arrangements yet, 
But uh, let's do pray for her. Let's close out with a word of prayer for her and her family. Father, we do pray for the Griffin family, Lord, that you would comfort them in this time of need. Lord, may they be transformed by the hope of who you are, God. As we just sang, Christ is our hope. Lord, let them know that in this time. And may, uh, maybe even a family member may come to know you through the funeral or through something that's said as we comfort them as a church body. We're thankful for Doris and what she meant to this church. And Lord, we just praise you that you've brought her home. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.